The show goes on. This is Eli Sussman, managing editor of Fish Stripes, hosting the official show on the Fish Stripes podcast. The first solo pod I think I've done here in 2022, but that is changing in a big way as we enter what should be the starting week of Marlins spring training. It's not going to be, yet there is a whole lot to cover, and I'll be doing so on a weekly basis here on the pod channel. So I just want to share to you guys what I'm thinking in terms of the audio programming you can expect from us here this season. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Last season, the official show, I was doing it usually two times a week on Mondays and on Thursdays, or rather it was coming out on Mondays and Thursdays. And that's going to be the plan moving forward, beginning this week and continuing indefinitely as long as the Marlins season goes, hopefully all the way into October where on Mondays I'll be dropping these solo pods with me reflecting on uh, whatever is going on and whatever is on my mind and whatever I think you guys really care about when it comes to all things Marlins. On Thursdays, I expect to be joined by a guest, a co-host, multiple guests, multiple co-hosts, either members of my Fish Stripe staff or guests from outside of Fish Stripes or even outside of the Marlins, anybody that I think has a really critical perspective on current events issues as well. So that's going to be starting up this week and hopefully every single week dropping two of those episodes. At the very least, you'll get these solo pods from me on Mondays. I pride myself on being the first Marlins pod you listen to to start off every week. And those pods will be there for you usually on Thursdays. I will have that second episode as well. Again, joined by either somebody from the staff or a guest that will contribute a lot of laughs and a lot of insight into your understanding of the team. As you may have noticed now, I think over four months, we've been going with Fish Stripes Unfiltered. That is co-hosted by Kevin Barral and Isaac Azut, uh, dropping episodes every other Saturday. So every two weeks, and the intention is to continue that because they are doing great with it. One of their best episodes yet just released a few days ago with Kelly Sacco. It was so much fun. I really enjoyed it. So check that out if you haven't already. That is available on all the same feeds where you're getting the official show. Just subscribe to the Fish Stripes podcast. Those full-length episodes of Unfiltered are already going up on YouTube. I am tinkering with the idea of doing the same here with me. I always get a little picky with the way that I appear on camera and the way that I present on camera and trying to do that while also you know, looking down at the notes and being able to read the precise bits of information, the multitasking a lot of people are pretty good at that. Myself, not so much. I'm working on it, but at the very least, I do plan to have like some sort of video elements to this that if not on YouTube, at least I'll clip it and share it on our social media accounts. Uh, another plug that if you're not following Fish Stripes already on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok. TikTok is one that we set up last year, and Isaac and Kevin are also pretty prominently involved with keeping that active. Follow us on all those platforms. Last year, we also did the daily weekday podcast, Big Fish Small Pod, 
and tentatively planning to do that as well. That's something that we really need to wait until this lockout thaws out before we do it, because there just is such a deficit of Marlins news and substantial updates. And we don't want to give you, um, we don't want to mail it in with that type of stuff. And that's really been the reason kind of for my hiatus on the solo pods. I didn't want to mail it in stuff that I know was kind of immaterial until we got more clarity about what the new collective bargaining agreement is going to look like until understanding where the dust settles with Marlins offseason moves. Like just, there's not a whole lot of really productive discourse that at least in my view that we could have right now, uh, other content creators can certainly disagree and are doing a great job at proving me wrong on that. Of course, the one that sticks out the most is Peter Pratt who took over locked on Marlins right as the lockout was setting in, in December. And he has just done a fabulous job of incorporating unique angles on some of these topics and bringing in a host of, of really insightful guests as well. So if you're listening to this, Surely you can find Locked On Marlins on some of those same outlets as well. I I, just, I can't like contain my excitement for how much content there's going to be from the entire community once this thing loosens up and we get going on the 2022 baseball season, the 30th season in Marlins history, the fifth season under Derek Jeter and Bruce Sherman's ownership. That is for what this episode is going to hone in on is how the Marlins have progressed during the rebuild that was initiated four and a half years ago when Derek Jeter, Bruce Sherman, and their ownership group took over, recognized a middling team, probably even worse than that, that was kind of rudderless and needed a big shakeup. They did that big shakeup. The specific angle that I want to dive into on this show is how much these outside factors beyond the Marlins' control have impacted them. This four and a half year span of baseball, and specifically the last two full years, have been unlike anything else that has happened in baseball history. That needs to be acknowledged. I don't think we do enough of pointing out how unusual the outside factors surrounding the Marlins and Major League Baseball have been over the past few years, how those have changed the way that the team has had to approach so many facets of their team building during this time. They've been in this situation. You could say it's maybe a more fortunate situation than other teams in that the expectations at the major league level have not been high in any of these individual seasons. There hasn't been an immense pressure to contend. That might finally be sinking in in 2022, yet uh, are they in a place where they can actually follow through on that? Can they actually deliver on people expecting them to vault into being a surefire postseason team all of a sudden coming off a year where they lost 95 games? The answer is probably not. But I think a lot of people agree on that, that there's still more work they need to do. The focus here is really on how those outside factors have changed what was originally drawn up for the team, what they initially planned to do, and the kind of adversity that has impacted them. I've never been one, not a homer for the Marlins. I've never been one to overly sympathize with the team. I mean, bottom line, as I'll get to again, circling back at the end of this episode, a lot of their issues or shortcomings could be simply solved by spending more money. It's that simple that this organization spends less money than most others, less access to talent and other sorts of um, internal advantages that their rivals are reaping and they're missing out on simply because of thriftiness. And that, that could go a long way to changing it. Outside of that, some of the other plans that they had, ones that were reasonably um, 
put together haven't quite panned out as they were hoping for. And I think there are some like real excuses that they could use for that. And I want to walk you through some of those excuses. How unlucky have the Marlins been with this rebuild because of factors that are entirely outside their control? That's an interesting question. It's been talked about a lot. That's an interesting question. We're going to start with COVID changing uh, the way that these the baseball calendar worked and changing so much about our lives outside of baseball, for sure. With the Marlins, as I said a few minutes ago, there was not immense pressure to be a contending team in 2020. They did add some payroll, some veteran players. They're supposed to be improved from 2018 and 2019. Uh, most importantly, 2020 was supposed to be like the zenith of their farm system strength. That was supposed to be when really started to crystallize and like start to form that entire homegrown core in 2020. That would be a few years removed from their first draft under new ownership. That would give them enough time for all the prospects they acquired in their rebuilding trades to mature, get comfortable in the system, and to make certain improvements. That was enough time for them to reestablish themselves in the international market as well, which had not been the case, obviously, prior to 2018. They, there was a long drought where they were simply ignoring that aspect of that entire talent pool in Latin America, the Caribbean, and elsewhere. So 2020 was supposed to be as good as it gets from that standpoint, because not only all those avenues for acquiring talent, but also the fact that they were coming off of 2019 where they lost a million games, so they were going to be picking number three overall in the drafts. So the middle of that 2020 season was supposed to be as good as it gets. That was supposed to be uh, their opportunity to ascend to an elite farm system, to fill out every position, to fill out uh, all their full season levels from from single A to triple A with talent, to have waves of talent uh, assembled and be ready to strike. And because once you are in that position, those guys either graduate to being productive big leaguers or you have that golden opportunity to trade them for established stars. That was all supposed to like come together in the middle of 2020 a reason why it didn't quite, or you know, they didn't quite reach that peak. They were never in the conversation for being like the number one overall farm system in baseball. I think COVID has a lot to do with that. Because of COVID, that wiped out the entire minor league season for all these players. That 2019 draft class in particular, that was the one that they were lauded for. People thought they kicked ass with that 2019 draft, led off by JJ Bleday, Cameron Meisner including Peyton Burdick and Nassim Nunez, and even deeper down that it looked like they had really hit a home run with that draft class. Most of those guys got to play a little bit in that first summer in pro ball. 2020 was supposed to be their first full minor league season, and it just did not happen. Instead of minor league season, like the small consolation that Major League Baseball set up for player development purposes was the alternate training site. Marlins had that in Jupiter, it was capped at only 60 total players. So that included, no, the player, I should say the player pool in total was just 60 players between the major league active roster and the alternate training site. And so almost half of those guys are already on the big league roster. The other half, in many cases, were supposed to be ones that were possible reinforcements for the big league roster. It skewed a lot older. It skewed towards organizations that already had good depth in the upper minors. Uh, or guys that were already on the 40-man roster and uh, could be optioned down. And that was not really 
uh, advantageous at all for the Marlins. With few exceptions, I think Blade was one of the very few guys from their recent draft classes that was they felt merited a spot at that alternate training site that had that combination of being fairly close to a finished product and could also uh, they felt could get valuable learning lessons from competing alongside big leaguers, potential league, big leaguers at that alternate training site. Outside of him, for the vast majority of their top-ranked prospects in 2020, it was just a lost season. They had to do so much of their instruction remotely. There were, I believe, an instructional league at the end of 2020. Like They, they did their best to cobble together some team-building opportunities, some like hands-on skills instruction. It just was not, at, by any means, uh, like full substitute for what they would have gained from that minor league season. So that was one very specific setback is how baseball handled COVID in regards to minor league players for a team that was in such a critical spot that once that draft class came in in 2020, because they that was yet another one, the all-pitcher draft led by Max Meyer, that, that was another one by all draft expert accounts that they just got terrific value out of it. We would learn in 2021, once those guys got on the field and that hype really did seem to be validated. You just wonder how much, how much better it could have even been if they had that first portion of the 2020 summer to get their feet wet in pro ball. What more do they learn? Um, Is it possible that any of them even advance even quicker through the minor leagues than they already have? from that draft class. We'll never know. We'll never know. But I think it's fair to excite that as a setback to some extent with this Marlins rebuild. I I guess a footnote to that is the 2020 draft for as well as the Marlins did. Remember it was only a five round draft five and the Marlins picked up a handful of other guys as undrafted free agents as well. It seems like ancient history, but in 2019, just the year before, and for a a good portion of the Marlins' existence, the MLB draft was 40 rounds, 40. Now, this past year, in 2021, it was shortened to, what, 20? And that seems to be likely where we're settling and moving forward. It was trending in that direction. They That shortened draft class in 2020 kind of limited what the Marlins could have achieved because they were picking number three overall and picking very early in every subsequent round for as well as they did. This is a reason why, you know, that that's why they had that window to maybe on paper take over as one of the very best farm systems in baseball is if they had a full length draft where they have one of the largest bonus pools and they're picking early in every round and they have this amateur department uh, led by DJ Spillick, a guy that I, I really admire a lot and thinks he knows what he's doing that they could have even done more to improve their standing in regards to organizational talent that was deprived of them because of the after effects of COVID in negotiating that deal, that temporary deal between the players association and major league baseball, you know, they decided to shorten the draft. They didn't have a minor league season. So nowhere to play them because there was just like this buildup of professional players that were under contract they came to that resolution and it screwed over the amateur players. And I think in particular, it was it was harmful for teams like the Marlins that are well-suited for making quality draft picks and developing them. I guess the other connection to that on the player development side stemming from COVID, 
you could point to how it trickled into 2021. Remember, in 2021, we did not have the full-length minor league season that we're accustomed to. Minor league season as a whole, the whole minor league system throughout the Marlins' existence, really since the early 90s, things had always been the same. There were always the same levels. There were this, approximately the same length of a season, and that changed because of the timing of minor league baseball's restructuring um, a couple winters ago where they trimmed out, what was it, about 40 teams to go down to 120. They removed the short season level that was between rookie ball and low A, and they reduced the number of games ever so slightly. Even under that restructuring, there was originally expected to be about 138 games at the upper minors and 132 at the low A and high A, if I do remember that correctly. Instead, on pretty short notice, you may remember, they pushed back the start of the 2021 minor league season. That did not start until May. It was supposed to start a full month earlier. It turned out to be a reduced schedule of only 120 games for the affiliates below AAA. With the Marlins, because of other COVID-related reasons, the reps were even less than that. Um, AA Pensacola only played 111 games. Uh, Beloit played the full 120, but Jupiter played about 117, something like that. After missing that entire 2020 season, now you have one where it's not quite as many reps as usual, and you have that one partial level, the short season level, that doesn't even exist anymore. Just more like inability to another handicap for a team that is so like dependent on developing these players, finding playing time, uh, helping all the pieces fit together. There were, I guess, some justifiable reasons for delaying the way they did, that the timing of it was just a couple months after COVID vaccinations were approved for like widespread use. So they wanted to make sure as many players as possible could get vaccinated before the season. They wanted to give the crowds, the people, the fans, uh, enough time to get vaccinated themselves and feel comfortable attending the games at, at a level where it is very heavily reliant on in-person attendance for those minor league teams. There were reasons, I guess, why they shortened the season the way that they did. Uh, the bottom line is that it's just a, it was another detriment to what the Marlins were trying to achieve on that front. Then there's the financial side of COVID as well. As I was digging through this research, it's coming up again with the negotiation of the CBA, the, the role that revenue sharing has played with the Marlins for almost their entire existence and will continue to play. That was added to Major League Baseball formally right after the previous work stoppage, 94 and 95, to set up a system where the largest, most profitable teams shared a portion of their profits with the smaller market teams, understanding the importance for the league to have that national presence to remain viable in all these different markets, that the larger market teams donate to the ones that have less steady revenue. The Marlins have been arguably the number one beneficiary of revenue sharing. You've known throughout their history that drawing in-person attendance has been a struggle for them almost the entire way, as well as television revenue and other sources. So for that reason, according to Evan Drellich of The Athletic, they received a larger revenue sharing payout in 2019 than any other team. They received about $70 million from the other big market teams as part of revenue sharing. 
And I imagine, I think it's fair to say that when Sherman and Jeter, they were putting together their idea for buying the team and running the team, that they had made some sort of assumption that there would continue to be revenue sharing like that, that that was part of the equation. That was part of what they had in mind in terms of the money coming in and how they could use that money to obviously build a contending team in all aspects. The the pandemic turned that upside down in 2020. That was understandably a huge hit to the revenue because they only played 60 games at the major league level, um, barely 40%, not even 40% of the usual season. And they did not have any in-person attendance during the regular season and all the revenue lost out of that. Baseball made the one-time decision to uh, ignore revenue sharing, to not do revenue sharing that year because of the, the lack of revenue. And if you dig really deep into it, you could, there's actually an argument that bigger market teams suffered more than small market teams from the way that the world changed due to COVID that year. That has followed up, though, because in 2021, they worked out this uh, un another unique one-time situation, which would be to kind of uh, delay the, the payouts to some extent of the revenue sharing. In 2021, uh, the recipients, like the Marlins, only received half of the available revenue sharing money with the other half of it delayed into 2022. Maybe that hits the books now. It's a little unclear uh, from his reporting exactly when the other half of the usual revenue sharing payment will hit the books for the Marlins. Either way, if, if you're looking at what they did in putting together the 2021 team, that I was pretty critical of. You know, I was saying from the beginning that they did not do enough to make coming off a postseason appearance. We'll get to that <clears throat> in a moment too, making it back to the playoffs, that they did not do enough to capitalize on that enthusiasm and give it any chance of being replicated with the way that they put that team together in 2021. It's, I would theorize that because of the revenue sharing situation, the total lack of that, extra boost you could say it's it, it was really kind of like the the foundation of of their spending the base the the financial base the money that they had banked on coming in that had they been relying on coming in that was just not there for them coming off the 2022 season that may have impacted almost certainly the amount of money they spent on payroll for 2021 and because of how frugal they were that team I don't think they had a winning record at any point during the 2021 season as they tried to fill, they tried to plug holes as best they could without actually making any sort of substantial investments in that. Some other little things on the financial side, part of the 2020 schedule that I was really excited about was this series early on in April that was scheduled between the Marlins and the Mets in Puerto Rico. It'd be the first time that any series had been played in the regular season in Puerto Rico in almost a decade for a Marlins team that just does not get a whole lot of national international spotlight for their games. Um, you may be aware of that things like Sunday night baseball. It's been years since the Marlins were on uh, at a national game like that. This was pretty important. Even if it was just a three game series in Puerto Rico, there were Puerto Rican players on both sides going to a community that loves its baseball and has hosted it in the past. Uh, little events like that that could have improved the visibility of the franchise, um, gotten them more interested in individual players on the Marlins. That didn't happen, and I don't think that's even been rescheduled for any upcoming year yet. Like There's still no commitment that they're going to 
do what they plan to do in Puerto Rico for that special series. That disappeared uh, even on a larger scale, the World Baseball Classic. Remember that? <laughs> there was a lot of hype when it was announced that Lone Depot Park would be the like the main host of that entire tournament, which had been scheduled for 2021. They do it every four years in Lone Depot Park at the time, it was still referred to as Marlins Park, would be hosting uh, the entire semifinals and the finals. And it may have been also a group stage even below that. They were going to host um, about half of the entire tournament of the World Baseball Classic um, for a market that has, they've, they've hosted WBC games before. They ho- In the previous one, they hosted just a small portion of it in 2017. And I think some people that attended those games still swear that it was one of the best baseball experiences they ever had. Like, there would have been nice crowds to this game. not And also that same national, international televised presence um, for a ballpark that had just recently put in some of its like critical gameplay changes. That was the time entering 2020 is when they installed the turf uh, to replace the natural grass that kept getting dried up and uneven where they brought in the fences a little bit more with the idea of having it playing more of a neutral uh, conditions instead of being so ridiculously pitcher friendly. That could have been an epic showcase of what Marlins home games could be like that could have trickled into the regular season that again, we didn't end up having any fans during that regular season. Um, As things currently look tentatively scheduled to be, the World Baseball Classic in 2023. That's still supposed to be in Miami. Hopefully that still comes together as planned a year from now. That's, you know, fingers crossed they still get that. It's just the timing of it is is unfortunate for this Marlins team that is, is looking to, that had certain goals, driving up attendance, driving up interest, um, showing the investments that they have legitimately made in the ballpark experience, in the ballpark playing conditions, they were unable to showcase that because the WBC was canceled, was was postponed indefinitely uh, so far in advance in the midst of COVID. The final note on that being the attendance, where you've noticed the attendance has not measurably improved for this. It was almost identical 2018 to 2019, just averaging 10,000 paid tickets a game and even lower in 2021 for, again, some reasons that, uh, just bad luck on the Marlins' part. It is technically a retractable roof. You know, they can play open air or closed air games. As you know from following the Marlins, that roof is barely ever open. You know, it was the judgment of, especially, it's always been the case that most of their games are played inside because of the threat of rain, because of the humidity. And even more so when Jeter took over, they leaned into the, the idea that this is mostly just an indoor-only venue for just the unintended consequences that could have when you open things up. Uh, But making that decision to almost always keep the roof closed means that when you're playing in the midst of COVID, you also have to take extra precautions. They were one of the final teams to have restrictions on the number of fans that could attend for most of the year in 2021. They were only selling about a quarter of the tickets, a quarter of all the tickets in the stadium for people because of as one of the few teams that play indoors and how much more of a health risk it is and how much easier it is for the virus to spread if it is inside as opposed to being in an open air situation. You know, that's something that 
even though you say, you can point out that they do have the option of opening the doors on many days. If there's ever a threat of rain, they really don't have the option. You know, this the way that this facility was built and obviously the market that it was built in was done so with the idea that the majority of the games would be indoors. In this particular situation, that costs the Marlins quite a bit of money and it costs the Marlins with the the ability to impact people and to, again, to flaunt all the, what they feel were positive improvements to the gameplay, to the stadium, to the fan experience. Those That fan experience, all the amenities, they weren't quite as many during the 2021 season due to COVID risks and other precautions that were being taken. So in an effort to keep fans as safe as possible, it's no exaggeration to say that they lost million. They, they didn't create as many millions of dollars in revenue on location as they could have realistically projected because of the precautions they had to take and the priorities that they had to put first ahead of baseball and ahead of making profits. So that brings us to the lockout covering all of COVID and COVID is going to continue to have subtle impacts on the season moving forward. Unfortunately, um, even with everybody getting vaccinated, it continues to be something that we don't fully understand, uh, something that continues to evolve. It's, it's, it's frustrating, and it's going to continue to put a bit of a cramp in the way that Marlins run on the business side and all that, and even on the player development side, specifically with the lockout. Uh, my the real thing that inspired me to record this now is Saturday's kind of expected news, which is that Major League Baseball made another offer to the Players Union, and it was a sucky offer. That it was just extremely similar to what they had been making previously in January. That it was unreasonable on numerous fronts in terms of how really the most important one that I've been mentioning on a, a few different platforms is how Major League Baseball just does not want to budge enough when it comes to compensating young Major League players at a time when across the league, many of the most marketable and top performing players are those who aren't even arbitration eligible yet, that those players are being exploited during those few years and really even bleeding into their arbitration years. They are being paid so below their market value. Players that used to be earning the biggest contracts in free agency don't get them as regularly as front offices now prioritize younger players. So the younger players continue to be uh, making less than it makes sense for them to make while the, the, the money that used to be going to the veteran players no longer does because those players moving forward aren't projected to contribute as much as we used to think that they do. And that, that's why steadily, even though revenues continue to grow very, very rapidly across baseball, that player payroll and player contracts have mostly stagnated during that time. The front offices, you know, they believe the players that they want to pay the most are the super young ones, but those are the ones that don't even have the leverage to negotiate their own contracts until they get at least to their arbitration years. Both sides still hung up on that. Both sides still hung up on a bunch of minor details as well, like the size of the postseason field, how many teams should be in there, how, um, just other core economic issues besides that as well. So it's frustrating and it's become clear. I record this on Super Bowl Sunday, February 13th. It's it's obvious 
to me at this point, like I'd put it at about 98% that opening day is going to get pushed back, that we are going to fall behind schedule with that. On the transaction side, this the, Mar- the Marlins were one of the more active buyers, you could say, at the start of the offseason before the lockout, signing Avisiel Garcia, a trading for Joey Wendell, trading for Jacob Stallings. Compared to most teams, you know, they are closer to like putting together their full team than most are, but they are not done. And that's another thing we've reiterated again and again. As much as it's tempting to try to talk about how this team currently lines up, um, what the season's going to look like, I think it's it just you need to show the restraint to wait until the whole team is put together. This is not the whole team. They still have a pretty glaring hole in center field. They have a lot of room to improve in the back of the bullpen. And they have to, in order to address those areas, are they going to have to give up more of their starting rotation depth via trade to do so? If they do, then how do they replace some of that starting pitching depth that for the moment they still have in great abundance? There's still a whole lot to do no matter how this shakes out, now that we've reached this point where you're listening to this on what was essentially at the time, this was supposed to be when pitchers and catchers were reporting to spring training. The fact that they're still so far apart on this deal, it tells you that uh, we're not going to get a full spring training. And that even if they compress spring training, there's going to have to be some sort of a buffer period to one, give time to report for the players that are already on rosters, but also to allow the many available unsigned free agents to sign. There are hundreds of players, hundreds still, that played in the major leagues last year and are free agents now. Uh, a bunch of those are technically major league free agents. Some of those are, are minor league free agents that just had a cup of coffee coming up and down. Yeah, and this is another thing that's you know holding up the negotiations is that teams cycle through more total players than they ever had before. That shell between AAA and the majors it is more active than ever. And those players, even more so than the pre-arbitration stars, those guys at the very bottom of the totem pole that just get cups of coffee to fill in at the back of the bullpen or to replace uh, an injured position player, those players have a really tough living um, from a lifestyle standpoint and from a financial standpoint because they're not getting a full season salary if they're moving up and down uh, from AAA to the minors. That's one of the other reforms that the Players Association is really digging their feet in, is making conditions better for that carousel of players that come in to fill roster holes and how pretty much every team has that practice of doing it, even though it is not ideal of an ideal lifestyle for those players that only get to taste the majors very briefly and are not treated well. No matter what, um, at this point, we've reached the point where Spring training is not going to be normal. It's not going to be a normal length, which means things are compressed and it puts additional pressure on Kim Ang and the Marlins front office to get those final pieces where at the very least we're expecting one more bad. Again, I I personally think that it needs to be another big priority for them to improve the bullpen and get somebody at the back end of the bullpen that reliably misses bats and can handle a variety of roles. Either way, they're going to be dealing with a compressed time frame. It's going to be either a very tiny window to make those moves before spring training, or they'll have to be making those moves as spring training is going on. And for a year where they are not shying away 
from raising expectations finally where where they want to sell you on the idea that this is going to be a competitive team especially if the postseason does expand to 12 teams to 14 teams i mean that was the only reason why they made it in in 2020 because of all the extra teams that were available and long term i think that's a good thing for the marlins for a small market team relatively that they're never expecting to put together a juggernaut 100 win team if they could just win 90 every year, then that may be enough to get them into the postseason uh, with 12 teams, 14 teams. Yet, as currently constructed, this is not a 90-win team. There's still more work to do. And because of the way that this lockout has totally interrupted the postseason, uh, interrupted the offseason, and ultimately it's going to condense the offseason. There's just not going to be as much time to have these negotiations to make what you feel are comfortable decisions the way that they would normally be. It's just another hindrance on this Marlins rebuild. As I reminded you up top, I am not a, a shill for the Marlins. I am, I'm not going to overly sympathize with their plight. Uh, a lot of this could simply have been addressed if understanding, if adjusting to the adversity was to make more money available. They did, after all, make the postseason in 2020 and they would not have made it if it was a full-length season. Because they were able to do that, I think that really did lift the morale of the fan base now that they didn't have that super long postseason drought. That's important. That We can't gloss over that. That they did, in, to some, in this one particular case, they did reap the benefits of the pandemic to do that. And it's not like COVID prevented them from ironing out the details of a new local television deal that was... When ownership changed, it was the number one priority for organizational leadership is to get a long, improved television deal. And they were able to do that in the midst of this pandemic. And that was able to, again, help with their revenue base for years and years to come. They don't have that excuse moving forward. This did not get in the way of that. Uh, icing on top of that cake would have to be the naming rights deal with Lone Depot. That came together. Uh, Regardless of these circumstances, for many years to come, this this further puts them in a position that they were not in before to to have all these steady revenue streams, but I guess you would call passive revenue streams that are going to be there for them. Um, they're going to be there to to help them establish that base, regardless of what the exact future of revenue sharing is from team to team. And also, I mean, this is not what forced them to make some of their mistakes on the player personnel side. Like, none of this is an excuse for most obviously, you know, trading Christian Yelich, a very good outfielder with five years of club control remaining, and the results of that. You know, when we talk about bad luck with this Marlins rebuild, I'm not saying, you know, it's bad luck that they traded a future MVP and got sub replacement level players. In return, it's it's not you know some that's just how the game is played. Sometimes a top fifty prospect it turns into a cornerstone player of your franchise, and sometimes it turns into Lewis Brinson. That's what happens. That some of these decisions that they did make were can, cannot be simply brushed away as bad luck. On the injury standpoint, there are injuries. I've looked it up. I've put it into all the context that I can. They have really not been affected any differently than the typical major league team in terms of the particular talent that they've had unavailable, the specific injuries 
that they've been dealing with. They they've been totally normal in the, in that regard. And on the player development side, you know, even coming off this 2021 season where we saw a lot of their pitchers take great steps in positive direction, but there's continuing to be just it's just we're running out of answers with how to develop hitters that is not seeming to change much at all. You know, there are precious few examples of hitters in this organization that you could get really excited about right now. Meanwhile, in other organizations, those, those hitters are flourishing and they are becoming cornerstones of other franchises while the Marlins, they do not at this moment have any sort of offensive cornerstone of their organization. The, their player development department needs to be held accountable for that. There's no excuse for that. You wrap it all together, but I do think that these truly unusual circumstances to have a, a once-in-a-century pandemic, to have a once-in-a-generation work stoppage come up almost back-to-back -back right at this time when the Marlins were supposed to be you know, transforming their organization from top to bottom, or rather from bottom to top, it's been inconvenient. It has been a big speed bump in what they were trying to do. It's really has changed the timeline to me. You know, they're going to try to sell you on the fact that 2022 is their year to begin putting it all together. I think it's hard for me to believe that, you know, there's a best case scenario. If everything goes together, then maybe, but more likely that gets pushed back to 2023 at the earliest because of the way that this has affected their player development operation and how it has affected their willingness to spend for these circumstances that have been happening around them. But if I've missed any particular detail, if you feel very strongly the other way, please just let me know. This is up on fishtraps.com. Fishtraps.com slash podcasts is where we put all our full length episodes. If you were grateful to hear from me, then just check back next week, every Monday morning for hopefully the next eight months or so, you'll be hearing my solo musings and almost, almost every Thursday, I won't commit to every single week, but almost every Thursday, I'll be joined by a fellow fish stripes staffer or a truly, truly captivating outside guest from either the Marlins community or even outside of that. Usually two total podcast episodes a week from me alone to go along with all of our other programming to go along with the content that we put up on fishstripes.com and the live streams that we do across Twitter, YouTube, and Twitch. We hope you check all that out. And hopefully we're not that far away from actually having true new stuff to talk about with the consummation of a collective bargaining agreement. I am Eli Sussman. This is the official show. Go Fish. <laughs>